0: And I think that like when we're talking about tablets and like 21st century tech, I guess that's just what I've been thinking about. It's like how this has happened before. These like historical cycles of technology doing something to change our um, experiences socially. And like religion is of course one of those realms of experience.
1: You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are
0: Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and my favorite video game is The Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild.
2: Uh, Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte, and my favorite video game is Legend of Zelda. Is it Ocarina Ocarina
0: of Time? If you can't remember the title, then I don't know if it's your favorite. (laughs) No. I know the title. I can't
2: say the word.
0: I know it's Ocarina because my sister bought an Ocarina after that game, and we learned some of the music.
1: I just 3D printed one. I may or may not have one in this room with me right now, but that's another story. (laughs) I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Redding, Pennsylvania, and my all-time favorite video game is still Pokemon Red for the original Game Boy.
3: Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudis Israel, congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And I'm the odd one out here. I didn't play video games as a kid or adult or, or mostly now. So the only game that I was ever exposed to that I could even figure out what to do was Tetris. So... I don't know if Tetris is considered a video game, but... Oh my goodness, that, it is the
1: would, video game.
3: The, the, it, Pretty the, cool. Tetris.
1: Up until recently, um, it was the it was the best-selling game of all time.
3: Yeah, so that, that one. Really? And, and all of these others, like <laughs> Final Fantasies and Zelda and Mario, and I have no Also, loot. fun
1: fact, that the... Uh, the license for Tetris was owned by the Soviet Union, and so all of those people who played in the '80s were accidentally funding uh, communism. So,
0: <laughs>
3: interesting. <laughs> Definitely wasn't me. <laughs>
1: Um, there are, by the way, there's a resurgence of the original Tetris on, uh, in, in competitive circles. And if you watch competitive Tetris these days, it's unbelievable. It's this whole subculture of people who have rediscovered and have completely revolutionized the game in ways that nobody would have ever thought of 30 years ago.
3: Competitive Tetris. Competitive Tetris. Even, That's like the words together, I don't fully understand. Well,
1: yeah. And here's the most wonderful thing about it um, is that back when Tetris came out, it was for the NES. It was on the Game Boy. It was for um, probably some other systems too. And it was one player. You no, know, with with a link. Later ones, you could play two player. Mm-hmm. But it was for the most part, you were in your house alone probably in your basement playing this thing by yourself and that's fine it's a little sad um tetris helps you with your uh reflexes i suppose so there's some benefit to it but now with this resurgence there are whole channels on twitch devoted to people playing tetris while people watch them play tetris and they Interact with the people who are watching them play Tetris and they build these communities around Tetris this Like the most simple mechanical game ever other than pong Now given the breadth and scope of the internet and the inherent connectivity of it have created something new and beautiful and wonderful and expansive that Um, is all thanks to the wonders of modern technology.
3: Well, thank you for making me feel better.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, just to say that there's a, there's, you know, if you wanted to get into that as a, as a hobby with all of your free time, then there you go. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Thanks.
2: (laughs) So um, can we go back just for a moment? I, my curiosity about the, um, the, Zelda game you mentioned, Kendra. It looks really good.
0: It is the best <laughs> game of all time.
2: I don't have an, uh, uh, the Nintendo Switch, but.
0: Well, I, you should you know, get one just I thought out. about getting one just because
2: of that. No, you did. Yeah, I, get I looked into it near the beginning of this, and yeah, you
3: can. We have been looking every couple of weeks for the last three months because my son was watching a YouTube gamer who played Mario. Like, his name is Zebra Gamer, literally, all I know about him. And he like video records himself playing all these different kinds of Mario. My son's like, I want to play Mario. And we're like, okay, let's get a Nintendo Switch. You can't, like, Mm -hmm. not unless you're willing to
0: pay three times the price, which I'm not. (laughs) Well, when they come back around, I highly recommend.
2: I will look into it because I, yeah, I wanted to splurge and get one. So it's my entire favorite.
0: But Zach, why did you ask us this question?
2: Thank you. Thank you. I wanted one to enhance screen time.
1: All right, Ian. (laughs) Screen time. Screen time. Uh Oh, yeah. Well, the thing about the Switch is that the point of it being a Switch is that it connects to the TV, but then you can switch it to it being a handheld if you want to watch it and play it somewhere else, too. So, there's nowhere you can go where you can't bring your game. Screen. screen. Right? And so, the people who grew up without that, without the mm-hmm. screens everywhere, without the video games everywhere, would see something like that as an absolute threat to the very essence of human nature. And I have, I, I have heard this and for my whole <laughs> life, You know, that video games are rotting your brain, they're destroying Mm -hmm. your soul. It's been blamed for everything from school shootings to the rise of ADHD to, you name, whatever social ill there is. Increased screen time and video games especially have been blamed for it in some way, shape, or form. And today, we wanted to talk a little bit about that, about our consumption of screens, but more specifically, our children's consumption of screens. Um, Because we know that their brains are still malleable, they're still growing, and so the the things that they do in their youth will determine who they become as, uh, as adults. And so with the pandemic, all of us parents who have just such ideals for the kinds of parents that we want to be, you know, limits on the amount of screen time kids are allowed to have and the types of things they're allowed to do and, you know, strict limits here, there, and the other. Suddenly, we have to get our jobs done while our kids are with us. And so, if we take away their screens, then that means we have to entertain them, which means we can't get our work done. And for people like me, And I imagine um, you too, Rachel. A lot of the work that we do, like, is conversations on the phone with people that it's not great to have screaming children around because maybe we're talking about something that I don't want my kid to hear, Mm
0: -hmm. and I
1: also don't want to hear want a grieving person to have to deal with my kid in the background. And so we have all kind of started to lean a little bit more heavily on the tech that we were so afraid of before.
3: Um, Or maybe we just threw out these ideas and said, you know what, just got to get stuff done, so we'll figure it out later.
1: Yeah, you know, the week after uh, the lockdown started in most of the countries, um, according to Nielsen, Cartoon Network viewing went up 60%. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
1: Um, (laughs) But for the most part, kids aren't really watching uh, cable television, right? Most... People, most millennial parents anyway, don't really even have cable television. Not Sorry. just
3: non millennials; some of us Gen Xers too. Yeah, I,
1: yeah. I don't. I don't have cable. I Are don't you have, Gen we X? Have, did we? Did we settle on this?
3: I, I, I have settled on this. I think you're you're so, ex,
1: mentally Gen X, right? But
3: I know some say eighty-one is Gen X, and right. the most comfortable is a Zenial, uh, a combination of Gen X and millennial, but. Mentally and how I grew up, I'm most definitely Gen X. Hmm.
1: Don't yeah, you take without, that away and from And the then exact I'm on that
3: cusp right. because some say 82 and some say 80. <laughs> and
1: um, in the, and the end, end, it's all a social construct that doesn't matter. Right? And that just
3: doesn't matter. <laughs> <Right>. But <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't have, I don't have cable either. But I think that goes to how you grew up, right? I mean, I think that's part of it. It's not just what is happening, but you know, so often parents bring in their own childhood as a mimic that or rebel against that. Exactly. (laughs) There's very very little in between. Um. (laughs) Which was my first
1: question to all of you, which was what was your relationship to technology growing up? Mm -hmm. So our first, I remember uh, growing up,
2: you know, I think our first video game system was like the Atari. Um, But I do remember getting my first Nintendo and then the Super Nintendo. And I think it was the Zelda game on Super Nintendo where I saw, because at the time, that's all I had. And and that's pretty much the main thing out there. They had Sega, but I wasn't in that one. (laughs) And I remember seeing in like the Nintendo magazine that would come out that I would get that I saw that it was possible to beat the Zelda game without dying. And that if you if you did that, your um, name would show a little zero next to it, showing that you beat it without dying. And I remember seeing that, and thinking, "Oh, that's so cool!" and um, and and did it. Yeah, but spent hours because it was in my bedroom. Stayed up almost all night doing this. I must have been like ten or eleven, and almost died at one point that I had like never died. I, but it was such a great experience. <laughs> so I loved doing that stuff. I mean, I still went out a lot and everything and i had a few i did have the game boy but i, I didn't really have a lot of other stuff other than that hmm.
3: well i'll give i'll give almost the opposite of that um <laughs> we got our first vcr when i was 10 and had um, rabbit ears to get network stations prior to that um and we had an hour of tv a week um, my sister and I, could, yeah, a week that we could choose to watch, and that and there was one TV in the house that was in the living room, and that was
1: it. Did you like and sit down it, with a TV guide every week and circle where your hour was going to be? Or
3: no, I was pretty consistent. So I've shared my nerdum before, uh, and it I I've been true to myself my entire life. So in my general memory, you know, eight, nine, ten. Um, that age, right, that's where my memories are really for me. I would watch Jeopardy. Um that Aww. that was my that was the show that I would choose. <laughs> I get two episodes of Jeopardy. Um and You're a wonderful. gaming <laughs> a gaming system was not a thing in like it it just wasn't even a thing. And and I'll share a real quick story. So there were some times when my parents would not be in the house. My sister and I, we lived in the middle of nowhere, literally the boonies of Colorado. And sometimes my parents would be gone for a few hours. This is when my sister and I were like 10, 11 years old. So it was fine for us to be at home for a few hours by ourselves. And we had one of those like big console TVs. Like it sat on the floor and it was giant. And for all of you that have flat screens and whatever, uh, that was not us. And so my sister and I were like, they're gone. Let's watch TV. Like that was our rebellion is that we would watch TV on a Saturday morning. And so we did. And they're like, oh, we hear mom. She's coming up the driveway because we had a quarter mile long driveway that was rock based. So you could... You would know when someone was coming up the driveway. And so we hear the rocks like underneath the car. And we're like, great, turn it off and go get a book or something. Right. So we did. That. <laughs> and we're like, we're not doing anything. And she's like, mm-hmm. And she goes and she feels the back of the TV and it's like burning hot. <laughs> she's like, You guys have been watching TV for a long
1: time. Because <laughs> yeah, of the tubes.
3: Because of the tubes. Oh right? man.
1: Kids so. these days will never know the joy of turning on a TV and letting it warm up.
3: That's mm-hmm. right.
1: Or then feeling the static on the, on oh, the front. Yes.
3: <laughs> so, so that
1: was... Look at me, kids was... these days.
2: Do so you remember that, uh, Kendra? Did I'm 34.
0: I mean, maybe I could make up some memories. I feel like that's vaguely familiar. One of the first TVs that my family had, but not really. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, so when I say I had no exposure to this, I kind of mean I had no exposure. Cool. So,
0: Yeah. I feel like I'm um, in the middle of Ian and Rachel's experiences because I, I have some great childhood memories. Like I played outside all the time, had a very Mm -hmm. imaginative, like backyard life with my sisters (laughs) and we got along fairly well. Um, but we also played a lot of video games together and they got competitive and nasty sometimes. And I usually won. Just want to put that out there. Um, awesome. Me and my sisters, our, our favorite games were like the the um, the original Mario game on the Nintendo. What was it? Su- the Super, not the Super Nintendo. The NES? Nintendo 94. What am I thinking? The NES? The NES. Nintendo yeah. Entertainment, Entertainment system. system. But what was the game, the Mario game? Super
1: Mario? Super,
0: Super Mario. Mario. <laughs> the one player game of Mario, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and we played a lot of Super Smash Brothers. Um, oh yeah. Played some Pokemon, played Zelda, Mario Kart, Mario Party. Mm. I was in love with Luigi for a, a short stint of my childhood. <laughs> Um,
1: was it the
2: mustache in the green? You know,
0: I don't really Tall, know what gangly. it was. I yeah. just, for whatever reason, found him more attractive than Mario, but it's something intangible that I'm not sure why that <laughs> happened. Um, but yeah, uh, I loved it. And, you know, it, it did get really competitive to the point where my youngest sister, before she was old enough to, like, be fun to play with, me and my other sister would take an old Atari controller and set the end of the cord underneath the Nintendo 64 to pretend like it was plugged in and then we would give her the Atari controller so that she could play with us. And Aww. then she would be like, "You guys, my character is not doing what I'm making it trying to make it do." And me and Kelsey would just go, "You have to push the button harder." obviously that's the only thing that's wrong and Kimberly i still do would this go, with oh, my children okay and then she would be happy for the rest of the two hours
1: you
2: guys are so mean
0: when she found gross. out yeah uh, later in life she was very upset but she got over it
1: i'm yeah, sure she was. she was having fun whatever that's sweet. i'm with you <laughs> I recently, well, a couple of years ago, I digitized all of my family's home movies, and there Why does was... that not surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> my mom loved to record our childhood, and at the time, I was like, Mom, turn the camera off, but I'm so glad she did it. And there was one Christmas where uh, my grandparents brought over a present, and I opened it up, and it was a Nintendo Entertainment System, and you know, with with Mario and Duck Hunt, and I was like, oh my god, we have a Nintendo, we have a Nintendo, we have a Nintendo, and, and my grandma was like, this is for you and for Kate, you can share it. And my dad gave my grandmother the death stare. <laughs> like, Pat, we talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> and so here's what you need to know about about my um childhood. I never had an NES growing up. There was never one in my house. Oh. There was one in my grandmother's house. Wow. Uh, that was hers. And apparently it's because my parents told her, do not buy video games for our children. And she did anyway. And so <laughs> So grandmas are poor. <laughs> so the compromise was to keep it at her house and then pretend like it was hers and we could play it when we went over and i had no idea and when i I was like mom dad you mean i could have been playing mario and zelda this whole time and they were like we didn't know like this was all new then these video game systems were just coming out and and all the reports out there were that it was it was like making children unable to focus on anything else, it was ruining their eyesight, it was, uh, it was causing behavioral disorders, like, all of the emerging, uh, I I hesitate to call it science, because I don't know if there's any actual science done. But the, the, (laughs) the advice coming out of expert, expert circles, was that don't let your kids play video games in the early 90s. And so they just did what they thought was best. Okay, and and we did have a computer with DOS, and mm. I played oh. I played me some Oregon Trail, and where in yeah. the world is Carmen San Diego? And the best uh, games
3: in the world, like these
1: educational games on giant floppy disks, and yes. the, I had so much fun with those. And and then until well, you
3: died of dysentery,
1: uh, always, always. <laughs> my dad actually and um, brought over the other day my Sega Genesis, which was my first real console Hmm. for that they allowed me to have and I just wanted to show you all um, my copy of the Jurassic Park Sega Genesis game which has far inferior music than the ones that (laughs) I wrote for our Jurassic Park (laughs) episode a few weeks ago just want to put a plug in there for myself (laughs) Um. (laughs) but I also remember we grew up, we got, like, a Windows 95 PC and then a Windows 98, oh, yeah. and we had dial-up forever, but we had the internet. We had, we, we got the internet in the mail, which is a weird sentence, right? Remember when you could get the internet in the mail? <laughs> AOL 1.0, we'll
3: directly <laughs> see like, you. Like, here's mm-hmm. 10 hours
1: of internet. Put this That's disc right. in. Um, but uh,
3: Can, just, awful, just For those of you, sorry, Zach, to interrupt. Awful yeah, yeah. since 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 this is audio only, you um, Right, so there is there's a few age, a few years difference between some of us, and Kendra's just like shaking her head, like, "What worlds and planet are you people
1: from?" Yeah, so I, I like my, my
0: world better. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: yeah. I think we're only five years. Give me instant each other, access
0: now. But-
1: well, but I grew up with no, exactly um, like in, in kind of this bridge world where. I I was outside and doing all that stuff, too, and was trying to figure out how to use technology and not always doing a great job. And in those kind of Wild West early days of technology and internet, when we weren't really sure how to do both, um, there wasn't a whole lot of integration with the real world, Mm. Uh, right? Like your screens, your computer, all of that was very stationary. And so it was meant to be an escape from the real world. You went somewhere and you did the thing in that room, in that place, wherever that computer was, wherever that game console was. You mm. went to that place and isolated yourself and did the thing. Mm. And so, yeah, that did not help in a, of, in a lot of ways. My relationship to technology was in many ways an escape as uh, growing up and not necessarily something that helped to make my real world life any more any, any better. That's probably not entirely fair, but that's how it feels now, anyway. Um, and it, it it occurs to me that technology has changed so much, Attica. even in just the past couple of years, to move away right. from you go to a place to use technology to technology is always with you and always being used and is always using you and you are always using it. And it we are becoming cyborgs to some extent, which... I think is actually better.
3: It's a full integration of what's out there rather than an isolation. I mean, I, I want to go to a couple of things. I mean, there's a, you just quipped, Zach, that there's only a few years difference in age between you and Kendra. And, um, I think Kendra and I are about 10 years apart. Um, I'm 28. Um, 11 years apart. When
2: do you turn 29? This year, right? <laughs> November. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> So yeah. we're 13 and a half years apart.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um
2: hello little sister. I'm 34.
3: Right. So. You're kind of in that that middle. But I think that there's just been this tremendous growth in technology in really just 5 years or mm-hmm. 6 years i mean my husband is 4 years younger than i am and had a completely different childhood and is completely a millennial in relation to technology um, right if you if you call him on the phone he will not pick up
1: um, <laughs> it's just not
3: that's ringing why is it ringing that's not what this is for um <laughs> Right and and it's sort of like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, um, that's that's only for when you're working. That's what a phone is for for business. So So I think that there is something very profound that five years is a technology generation um right it's no longer that 20 years is a generation because that's when one you know when one couple had a child and the next child had a child later on it was 20 years it's i don't think it's that but the other thing i was really struck by what scott said last week um who i'm still just kind of in awe over and so appreciative <laughs> that he spent his time with us mm. that <clears throat> to see this great of technology sorry
1: Kendra's just reaction <laughs> a bunch of
3: nerds yeah, it's, it's all good um,
1: deal with it Kendra. <laughs> that's right
3: <laughs> we'll fawn you you don't have to
1: um you can just laugh
3: right to to really have this heightened and amazing technology and firmly entrench it as opposed to allowing it to be um hermiting ourselves Right. So that the apps that he suggested us using, right, iNaturalist and Seek literally get you out of the house. Mm -hmm. And they they are educational, not quite the same way as where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, um, but in a different way. We've used them. Yeah. I Mm
2: -hmm. mean, we use them Tuesday morning on a walk around the neighborhood.
3: That's right. It's amazing. Under- and it's just it's bridging that. Or or as you were as you were indicating, Zach, that we went from Tetris, a single player game, which had minimal educational value um, or minimal intellectual value, to now it's creating communities. So and even this, right? The four of us are sitting here and there's a bunch of people listening, right? Technology is actually allowing for um deep connections. With people, and that I think is its is its value, not just its escapism, which is still a value, but that it's not all escapist. And I think when we talk about screen time, and I'll link a few things in our show notes. When we talk about screen time, we really need to be cognizant of it's not the screen that matters; mm-hmm. it's what's on the screen that matters, and how you're connecting. To what's behind it or integrating it in your life if you're just watching really bad cartoons from the nineties, or if you're watching Dinosaur Train, right? Are you doing um Letterland to learn phonics? Or are you playing Tetris? Right? That there's I mean, even even the even one of the games that's been big for several years, but because my son is just now six, he's just now getting into it, Minecraft. Hmm. Right, I mean, there's this, there's this entire world around Minecraft, and it's it's amazing.
1: Yeah. So, in terms of the screen time issue, um, which is like this buzzword among parents, yeah. um, like you have two hours of screen time, one hour of screen time is not a helpful concept, and this is something that the experts are coming more and more out to say. Mm. You know, one of the things I thought was. Um, uh, helpful. The American Academy of Pediatricians did not put a limit on screen time. And right. um, Dr. Jenny uh, Rodeschi said, quote, uh, this lack of specific time limits was deliberate. We are trying to prevent parents from feeling like they are not meeting some sort of standard. There is no science behind this right now. If you are looking for specific time limits, then I would say don't be on it all day. Yep. Because do you know how hard it would be to create a good uh, study on children that can control for all of the different factors that go into uh, who a child is, what their home life is like? all of the different sociological and psychological factors that go into how much time they're on this screen, and then how do you measure how they're developing socially or whatnot? It, it's it's nearly impossible to control for all of the different factors. And so we're doing our best with what we can and what we have. It does seem, according to at least um, at least one pretty large meta-study that we'll put in the, the show notes, that there are better types of screen time than others. The form that seems to be most correlative to issues of uh, like attention deficit disorder and behavioral issues seems to be television over, say, video games or tablets. It's the the passivity of it, exactly. That when you are simply sitting and receiving information you are not being stimulated in the same way as if you were interacting with it. And that is huge. And this is something that, that our modern technology and the internet has really allowed us to, to open up, to expand. Everything is a social game now, right? Like you can't play anything on your phone without it asking you if you wanna share it to Facebook. Um, <laughs> and so the quality of the thing itself, um, and what your kid is doing is is just is more important than the amount of time they're doing it. So, for example, during this time, my son loves Mario, loves it. I got him started on Mario Run on the tablet a while back, and which is just you're just running and jumping. It's it's pretty easy, <laughs> and. Um, he, his his nephew gave him his old, oh, his cousin, sorry, my nephew, gave him his old uh, 2DS and, and a couple of games. And so my son was just plowing through Mario 3D World and New Super Mario Bros. 2 and just loving it. And so I got him Super Mario Maker in which you make levels, you create them, and then you play them. And so... Th- and then I I've bought it. I bought it for myself so that I could make levels with him, and for both on both of our DSs, we can make levels for each other. And I can help him with his levels, and he can help, he can suggest things for my levels, and we can experiment and learn and create things together that are challenges for the other person. And so we are stimulating creativity and teamwork and stick to itiveness. I can't tell you how many times he's been like, "I can't beat Bowser." this is impossible dad you need to do this and i'll go no if i do it for you then you won't be able to beat the next castle this is how do you think i got good at this is i i lost a lot you can't be good at something without being bad at it for a long time and he's internalized that and i watch him he was teaching my wife how to play and he'll be like don't worry mommy keep trying you'll get there and then at one point with my with my mother he was like maybe this game is too hard for you, grandmom. Let's try another one.
3: <laughs> no, that so sounds like conversations in my house. <laughs> right? I'm the grandma. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I've found it's that the quality hard. of the thing itself, something that stimulates creativity and um, problem solving, big open world games. This is what I always love about Legend of Zelda games is it's all about these little puzzles you have to solve. Um, are so much better for the development of an imaginative human being than others that are, you know, like Candy Crush style. Yes.
3: Which again, I'm just, I'm just going to throw this one out there. Um, even things like Candy Crush style, I think, are still appropriate, depending who you're talking to and how much usage there is. Right? That there's still, just to be completely explicit about this, there's no judgment here. Right. Each right. of us each of us is deciding what's best for us um, and what's best for our families and and stuff like that. The the addictiveness that these some of these games like Candy Crush sort of builds in, you know, that's that can be a challenge for, for their industry. But even if you want something like that for the escapism, right, we've talked about that this the world right now. So we're recording this um, in early June, early mid June of 2020. There's a lot going on right now. And it can, it can be healthy to escape for a little bit. Huh. And if that's, if that escape happens through a game, I think that that's, I think that that's fine. As a wise man said, my dad, um, <laughs> life is best with moderation and variety.
1: Hi, this is Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. Down the Wormhole came out of our Interfaith Fellowship, but Sinai and Synapses also has projects directed towards Judaism and science. We have an open application for our project Scientists in Synagogues, which would give your community $3,600 to do work on Judaism and science. The deadline is July 23rd, and you can see it at sinaiandsynapses.org. Thanks very much. I'll say this again, that the closest that we have ever, and probably will ever get to world peace was that first summer that Pokemon Go came out. Mm -hmm. I was waiting for Pokemon (sighs) Go to come up. Because it was the perfect integration of a, a digital game and real world integration, where you had to get out and go places and congregate together and meet new people. And we all, you saw a person on your phone and you were like, hey man, what are you doing? And then like, I, there were times I'd be just walking through the park and someone would be like, Dragonite down there. And I'd be like, thanks, man. I don't know this person. I've never met him before in my life. And here we are collaborating on this imaginary monster collecting game. And uh, even, even now, the veneer is kind of washed off in this area, at least, and people aren't playing as much. But there's a really thriving, wonderful Discord channel that I'm a part of for players nearby, and I'm talking with those people all the time. And someone would be like, I need help with this raid over here. And I'll be like, well, I've got a minute. I can run over there and help you out. And I'm meeting people, and I'm getting to know them. And my church is both a gym and a Pokestop. And so, like, I've, my name on Pokemon Go is Rev Jack, And so the people <laughs> in the area know that I'm the pastor of this church, and like, Uh, Before the pandemic, you know, if if there was a raid at my church and you needed to come in and use the bathroom or get a drink of water or come in the air conditioning, like, yeah, I got you. I'll hook you up. And so I've met so many people in this area and I know them now, like as friends, because we've connected through this game, which, you know, most people would say is just a, a frivolous waste of time and that, you know, I should be a grown up and not. Running around collecting invisible monsters. But it's facilitating real world connection mm-hmm. and exploration of places I've never been to before.
2: I yeah. always get tired, you know, when people make the comment about why are you doing that? You should be a bro- grown up. You know, why are you doing these childish things? You should be a grown up. And there are times I'm just like, isn't that part of maybe the problem? <laughs> Is that grown ups are encouraged not to play anymore?
1: To <laughs> always be serious and never play. C.S. Lewis said that the most childish thing that you can do is pretend that you're not a child. Yeah. Right, every child it it acts like they're a grown up, and like that's the I'm not a kid. I'm a big kid. Hmm. I'm a right that they they don't want to be a kid, and so it's like the most grown up thing you can do is to acknowledge that you're still a child. But can we go back to Pokemon Go because Please. Kendra, you
2: play that a lot too, right?
0: Oh yeah. I love it.
1: Yeah. So
2: I've never played it. What are your thoughts on Pokemon Go? Like, <laughs> what has it done for you?
0: I mean, honestly, I don't really like to play video games to connect with the world. I know that's kind of what this conversation has been about. <laughs> and maybe that just makes me more of a,
1: I think this an is angry just hermit. You and but, I. <laughs> right.
0: Like, yeah, I, I, I share gifts with Zach on Pokemon Go, but I don't really like to talk to strangers. Um like I liked my video game experiences to be just me on my couch with my husband and we like compete against each other or with friends. So, I don't know. It's like I I love that part of my life, but I I guess what I've been thinking about is like the re- the religious connection to the technology just because that seems I think that's what the direction of this conversation is like slowly maybe inching towards. (laughs) And I've been thinking about the way that, um, and I guess this doesn't just apply to like kids or adults, but in general how, like when the reformation happened, part of what made that possible was um, the invention of the printing press. Um, And it was this new technology that like increased accessibility for people and, um, you know, allowed people to read sacred text for themselves, and that that caused this widespread change and, you know, different uh, opinions of interpretation. And, like, that was that's a, an, um, a central part of the story of the Reformation. And I think that, like, when we're talking about tablets and, like, 21st century tech, uh, I guess that's just what I've been thinking about. It's, like, how yeah. this has happened before, these, like, historical cycles of technology, doing something to change, you know, the, our um, experiences socially. And like relig- religion is, of course, one of those realms of experience. And so, yeah, I, I've in that, though, I've been wondering, especially for parents with kids, um, I guess one of the the concerns that people always have is like, how much autonomy do you give your child to like be on a screen all day, or do you have a two hour limit or whatever? And um, there's something about like how much autonomy should a child have to make those decisions for themselves. And um, I think that like part of the risk of the like 21st century technology where the internet is at your fingertips and you can know, you can look up anything, learn about anything, that that's a lot of um, control and autonomy Uh, that is on the one hand really good because it opens up the world, but also how do you teach not just children, but adults to responsibly navigate the overload of information that we're intaking Mm -hmm. because that affects our political opinions and our religious opinions. And that like politics and religion being something that's really central and um, weighty in the way that we interact with the world, that it seems very risky to just leave that to the whims of the internet to decide Mm -hmm. for each of us. So (laughs) I guess that's what I've been thinking about. Um, It's not so much like a question about video games or like the gaming experience for me, but about these other parts of um, technology that um, inform our identities.
1: Yeah, the gaming connection for me is just it's an entry point into talking about the the greater move in technology from the isolated to the connected, from the local to the global. And it's true in every facet of technology these days that even, even your refrigerators that connect to the internet and... Right, there are hackers across the world that are hacking into your toaster these days, and you know, we are, everything is connected to everything all the time, and the result we're starting to see is um, is what's emerging out of uh, Gen Z, which I think we're finding a generation that is far more tolerant, um, far more accepting of other beliefs of other people who don't look and sound like them who come from cultures that are far different because it's not so weird anymore. When I when I grew up, like we had we had the internet when I was an older child and teenager, but you know, communicating across the world was never a part of my experience. Now it's like you can't escape this. We are a a much smaller world and kids are growing up with that and with access to all the information about everything all the time and they're demanding things like justice and equality and tolerance and Gen Z is like they are a generation of activists out there calling out previous generations who don't see that because they grew up the older generations grew up in their town you know there's smaller villages and this younger generation doesn't understand what it's like to live in a village when the whole world is a village now and i can only imagine what generation alpha is going to be like mm-hmm. um which is i guess what we're calling the next one because we ran out of letters this is we started at x we should not have started at x <laughs> we should have started much earlier in the alphabet but here we are um so in terms of like spirituality and um the future of the religious experience that is going to be dictated by these people when they start taking on roles. As, as adults, I, I just see this ever-widening circles of, of mutuality and oneness that is facilitated by this, these new technologies, which I think we're just starting to figure out how to use instead of them using us. I have I have a lot of hope for the next generations. I think they're pretty great.
0: I mean, I'm glad for the hopeful, optimistic point of view because I think on the other hand, there's a I have a cautious optimism, um but also a real concern about the fact that it's not that we and technology just like continue to evolve together. Um, like Gen Z, you know, they're, I think we're watching a generation grow up, but, you know, the next generation, we're going to have to teach them all over again about like how to navigate whatever technology is available to us then and to teach people how to be careful of the way that like algorithms and search engines will bias your news feed, and mm-hmm. you know all of these things that are—they're so subtle, and it's really hard to understand. If you like, you can't really get what that means um, with just like a basic, like high school education. I mean, maybe high school educations will have to change to uh, accommodate the the technological growth that we're having. I know in high school, there was no opportunity for me to have any kind of knowledge in like computer science or, you know, like <laughs> uh, Google algorithms. Um, but I think that's actually a really important thing that we, in order to keep control of the technology rather than letting it control us, we have to build that into our education systems. And which I think ultimately like helps kids grow up and be, Become competent adults who know how to, you know, like find reliable sources of information. Um, yeah. So I think that that's definitely a concern that I, I don't think is um, like insurmountable, but hmm. it could be catastrophic.
1: Well, they're doing it already. That the younger generations are already far better at spotting fake news than older generations, they mm-hmm. fall for things much less. Than older generations they're they're already aware of the algorithms and you know the all all of that because it's just it's the air they breathe it's the water they swim in it's it's we're all aware of the thing that we're doing it's and yeah there's definitely some nefarious underbellies in that um there's we are at some point going to do a whole mini-series on machine ethics on uh, algorithms and implicit bias and the sort of racism and sexism that's built into um, sometimes Mm -hmm. intentionally and sometimes just accidentally into the algorithms that control how we think and what we do but we're examining these things right now i see my 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 cousin's doing his his uh phd work right now on on this exact issue on on machine ethics in, in terms of um, algorithms and social media and there's whole departments that are focused on on this i think we're i think we're looking at a much brighter future personally i i think so i i love technology though
2: And I would say back to what you said, Kendra, about education, that you know, it need it would need to start even earlier than high school. Like you want to start talking about, you know, with helping people understand, you know, appropriate uses of technology, how how the technology works, that kind of stuff at a much younger age than high school.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. And and I, I also think that like Gen Z looks different to us than maybe other generations because of the technology that exists. But I also think that that like, I was having a conversation yesterday about like environmental ethics in, in one of our, which we were all there together in our um, Sinai and Synapses alumni meeting. And we were talking about um, machine learning and um, this one fellow who is not in our cohort, uh, was talking about how, like, right now we pay attention to activists who, like, have the microphone and the cameras on them. Like, we we know, um, like, Greta Th- Thunberg. Is that how you say mm-hmm. name? Mm-hmm. I, I always mm-hmm. read it, but I don't really say it out loud ever. Greta mm-hmm. um, never said it. Yeah, yeah um, like, we pay attention to the Greta Thunbergs of the world, but, like, there have been kids who have been... Speaking out on these same issues, they just have less access to technology. And so it seems like this is a new thing where the youth are like standing up mm. for what they believe in, but this has always happened. It's just not always been visible to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- when people live in areas of the world where they can't like be in front of cameras all the time, or if people just don't pay attention to those. Um, young activists because of their like socioeconomic background and other like demographic factors, and so I think that's also just important to realize like the cycle of human life and how so much of it like does repeat and is very similar, even though um, the circumstances of our technology makes it appear um, to be unique in some way. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to or. Um,
3: look at this idea of how much of these algorithms are shaping ourselves versus um, our communities shaping us. And I think that's where we that's where we need to put our energy in terms of making this a symbiotic relationship. So it's is that you have still the connection. So from a you know, a religious community standpoint, so many of us now are, meeting virtually and so what does that look like as we've we've certainly talked about in terms of translation and uh, transliteration of rituals but also in this way right how in terms of well is it just screen time to watch services together um <laughs> right and and for the youth right who might get a whole pew and run around to get all the smiles or the scowls um Depending on the the worship center itself, um, and it's so much harder for them to engage in this particular format. But the need to still have that community, the need to still have that larger space of connectivity, I think, is really important to weed through and to help filter out the algorithm that hmm. we might be seeing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it to me it it requires a blend, and it's it's that blend. That gives me the optimism. Hmm. I have very little very little optimism in AI itself.
0: Oh. It is fascinating very. and terrifying yeah, it's <laughs> mostly mostly
3: because um it to me, it all comes down to the user right the the person who programmed mm-hmm. it. Which is one of the things that we'll talk about, right? It's the person that programmed it. So they have their own issues. <laughs> sure. We all have our own issues. So but if we have the people that will guide us, right, that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, we need to we need to know what our actual village is. So so Zach, you were saying, you know, the the, the world is a village at this point. And while that's true, it's some you know, in a in a nice theoretical way, I think there still needs to actually be an accountability village. So, we might be more global in so many ways because of these technologies, but we also need to be recognizing that there needs to be an accountable place for each of us. And I don't just mean children. I mean, for all of us to do. Hmm. Um and that's that can be part of this screen time concept. Is who's creating the accountability for for children and for us?
1: Yep. Yeah. Can I? I I wanted to, um, and I know we're nearing the end of our time. Before we before we end, I wanted to give a couple of uh, of suggestions, some practical apps or things that people can use that you can use your phone to actually enhance your experience with the natural world. Um, And maybe, especially if you have kids, to uh, help your children to see, to enhance their experience as well of the great outdoors. Uh, The first one is Amazon is just chock full of USB microscopes under Mm. $30. Mm And they're obviously not, like, lab-quality microscopes. But just the other day, uh, I found a dead crane fly in my house. And instead of being like, ew, yucky, a fly, I plugged in this microscope into my phone and got to show my boys the compound eye of a crane fly. And how cool that is. And the wings are just gorgeous and intricate and you would never know that just seeing it buzz around your ceiling but just how beautiful things can be close up and then we we looked at at like his hair and his skin and we looked at his teeth and this is my son not the crane fly they don't have teeth yeah um, okay
3: <laughs> <laughs> thank you for making that addition <laughs>
1: I wanted to get it because I wanted to look for tardigrade, but I don't think that it's it's powerful enough to to find <laughs> those. Not. We have a lot of like ponds out here, and I thought I might be able to find some fun stuff. Um, but it was cheap, and it was easy, and it was wonderful. Um, last week, uh, Dr. Scott gave us a plug for uh, Seek, mm-hmm. which is just um, it, it's like a real time identifier of nature where you just hold your camera in front of a leaf or a flower or an animal or a bug, and it identifies the thing itself. And then you can take a picture. And then if it is that thing, then it goes and helps their algorithm to, to better figure out how to identify things in the future. And they've gamified it where there's these challenges in there as well, where you can um, uh, like get badges for getting a certain amount of this, that or the other. So in addition to seek, I live in, I live in the mountains. And so there's a lot of Hills and mountains around me and I don't know what they're called and there's an app called peak finder that uses your location and your camera to create this kind of augmented reality where you can move your camera around and on the screen, it will give like the outline of the peaks and the valleys around of the mountains and the hills that are near you and give you their name and their elevation. And so if you're ever wondering like, really cool. what is around you and how, and then you can then put what, that together. What is this? this is called Peak Finder. Oh. And I use this in conjunction with some hiking apps as well and to find new places to go and to be able to identify like, oh, that's Monocacy Hill over there, okay. And in conjunction with that, I use this app called Rocked, R-O-C-K-D, Rocked. It combines uh, geological survey maps with um, this social uh, experience where... I can open it up right now and it will tell me what I'm standing on geologically right now, uh, what the different layers are, where where they're from, uh, like what age range and all that. And so I can then see so cool. that, like, like for example, I could take out Peak Finder and I could see like, that's Monocacy Hill over there. But uh, then I can pull out Rocked and I can see that, oh, that is in itself like a little pocket of igneous rock around this pool of sedimentary. So like I know that Monocacy Hill is a volcano. How cool is that? Which then led me to learn more about this whole rift valley and the why there's no fossils in this area and and then to discover these little pockets where there's there's fossiliferous sedimentary rocks from the jurassic and i'm going to find a dinosaur in my area (laughs) i know i will there was a housing development about 15 years ago and while they were digging up somebody found a skull and so i know that there are little pockets that were preserved from the jurassic and (laughs) (laughs) there's one place i have found on the map that is uh, both that layer and also in public land. And so I've been kind of searching um, as best I can. But I use this anytime I go travel, especially if I'm traveling far away or if I'm looking for fossils, which I'm often doing when I'm, I have free time. I love looking for fossils. This is how I have found a lot of it. And people can then upload pictures of things that they found in the places they've found them. And so people who are also fossil hunters or rock, rock hounds uh, – are able to share with each other as well. And I love being able to to plan my hikes based on what kind of rocks I'm gonna find. And then finally, my favorite nighttime app is Star Chart Infinite, which uses the accelerometer and the GPS on your phone to be able to look up at a star map that is moving. And so you can Mm -hmm. identify what that bright light is, what that bright light is, where the constellations are, where the International Space Station is, where there might be interesting things to look at. And then, so sometimes when it's nighttime and I'm outside and I'll just, pull it out and I'll, I'll, I'll be like oh hey buddy do you see that up there that's and then we'll pull out the phone and that's Venus you want to see a picture of Venus and we'll click on it and then I'll be able to look at pictures from the surface of Venus thank you was that the Soviets that sent it to, to Venus yeah. um well we did yeah, too the too, surface too, too, of too. Venus is is hot enough to melt lead so it didn't last yeah. very long yeah
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah I think it was like <clears throat> less Everything than an was hour. It think it was less than an hour for ours. Yeah. Uh, two two quick notes on that. Um all the apps that Zach is talking about, I will certainly put in our show notes um so that if you're interested, you can download them yourself too and Second, in terms of this star chart, you do have to be in a place where there's not nighttime light pollution to actually see the stars. It only works if there are stars. So we apologize to you listeners who are not in those areas, but this is an opportunity yeah. to get out and take a drive to your local deserted area.
1: Yes, your local deserted area. That's a fun yeah. way to put it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I got to remember which one I use. Oh. So-
3: Um, Because all these things things are really great, but we still have to recognize that depending on what environment you're in, you're talking about all these great rock apps, but what if you only live in a concrete jungle? I think that that's... But
2: there's rock underneath
1: it, wouldn't that work?
3: Well, yes, but it's not an (laughs) x-ray. It's not. Well, it's,
1: but it knows where so you are. This is a challenge that Dr. Yeah. Scott gave us was that there's That's wilderness good. everywhere you go. It's just about finding where it is and allowing it to be wild. So, you know, um, centipedes are every bit as wild and amazing as white-tailed deer, you know, in mm. in the fields. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just a matter of scale and looking. 'Cause yeah. You can find and all wonder. kinds of things in, in yeah, in Wonder. In whatever if even if you're in a, a, a big city and that yeah. doesn't seem to have a whole lot of nature or interesting rocks or whatnot, there are. I mean, <clears throat> even if in like you're in New York City, have you ever been to Central Park and seen the the uh Geology of Central Park is just fascinating. The mm-hmm. sorts of yeah. stones that are up there, the ground beneath you tells the history of the world, and I, uh, I only know these things because I, I am connected to them. So everywhere I go, it's right at my mm-hmm. fingertips to be able to get to know the natural world better and fall more in love with the world around me.
3: And that's because of your curiosity, your wonder, and technology. Yep. It's a combination of the world as is, the person as is, and the technology that exists. And I think that's, I think that's our goal, mm. right? So we started this episode talking about, you know, screen time and video games, but it's really the, I just, I'm going to say it again. I, I'm still fawning over Dr. Scott, um, yeah. that, that his his view of looking at this world as that we are completely a part of it, not a part from it. And that these are ways that if we really love being on our phones, great. These are ways that we can be on our phones and still be connected to the world mm-hmm. in which we inhabit. So, thank you, Zach, for sharing some of those. Ian, do you have any apps that you particularly love?
2: Well, so one of the ones that I've used a lot when outside is uh, is Sky Guide, and that's Sky a Guide. star one. Mm. Okay. I really like that a lot. Yeah. There's another one I've used that I I have on my iPad, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, I have more on the iPad than I do on my uh uh-huh. phone. So that because yeah. a lot of times we'll do it like right outside the house.
3: Right. It depends. Right. Do you have a phone, a tablet, or a computer? Right. All three different right. sizes. You know, small, medium, and large. Yeah. Depending on what you're doing.
2: Um, but I've always been very impressed with with things like Sky Guide and stuff. <laughs> and you know, there's there's a huge push within science education community to use. there's always been a push to use technology in the classroom to help enhance the learning experiences, Mm -hmm. not to replace them, but to enhance them. Mm. Um, And there are a lot of things that technology has allowed us to be able to do in educational settings that we never could have done before, Um, which is really exciting. The thing is, is that again, the importance to remember is that it's about enhancing educational experiences, not replacing,
3: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. right? So, I like the fact that, you know, Dr. Scott introduced us to those two apps that I will incorporate with my my pre-service teachers. You know, I, I do reach out to a lot of science educators in my community of asking, you know, what are some good apps that people use in their classes and recommend to teachers so that I can incorporate them into mine. But so that we can use these very powerful tools that are in front of us to make things better, to help us learn more. So I've always appreciated that about it.
3: Yeah, thank you. And you know, just any listener out there, let us know on our Facebook page or on our podcast page or however you want to get a hold of us, what apps do you use that able you to connect mm-hmm. to, um, right, actually, I'm not going to limit it, right? App that you really love for escapism reasons, an app that you really love for connecting with your friends, an app that you really love for connecting to nature, an app that you totally despise and we should all stay away from, right? Uh, let us build this community in terms of expanding our own and widening our own circle.
1: Yeah. Join us on the uh, Down the Wormhole Facebook Conversation. Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group. That's the wording. Yes, please. And let's let's share resources together. Uh, Let's live into this global community that we're talking about and so excited about. This has been episode 43 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. You can keep this conversation going over at the Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group. Make sure you check our show notes for all those links and further readings as well. Also, a big thanks to our supporters on Patreon whose generous donations make this podcast happen. Next week, we are going to be carefully, prayerfully, and humbly starting a miniseries on race and racism. Specifically, how science and religion have both been used as tools of white supremacy, as well as tools of liberation, and how we can be better allies in this fight. There's a thread on our Facebook group already, so if you'd like to share your thoughts and experiences as we move through this, check it out. Thank you for continuing on this journey with us, friends, and for being just the best. Till next week, remember, spread love, not germs.